Welcome to Season 2 of History, Books, and Wine. We're your hosts, Lori Ann Bailey and Eliza Knight. We love sharing, so pour a glass of vino, and let's dive into the past. Today, we're excited to have a guest joining us, Canadian author Bryn Turnbull. On this episode, we're going to talk about the eldest daughter of the last czar of Imperial Russia, Grand Duchess Olga Romanov. Welcome, Bryn. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. This is so, it's so lovely to chat with you both. Uh, We're so happy to have you here. You too. We're so excited you're here. (laughs) It's going to be fun. Yes. So every episode we talk about what we're drinking. So Bryn, what are you having today? So like as we're recording this, it's September and the Toronto International Film Festival is in town. So I've been behaving myself all week because I'm going to a TIFF party tonight. So right now I'm drinking water. This evening I will be having a fancy gin cocktail. So I'm very lucky. That's awesome. That sounds yummy. Sounds delightful. I love that. I'm drinking a rosé. And it's by a wine company called When and Where, and the rosé is called Okay, Where's the Pool? <laughs> and <laughs> I have that same It's exact perfect question. for September. Yeah, exactly. I wish it was When still we summer. can't go to the pool anymore. <laughs> right. So I thought that was um, pretty appropriate. <laughs> so I just went to my wine cabinet and picked out a red wine, and it's from Chile. I believe I got this from... Costco, maybe? I'm not sure. It's it's one of the top 100 wines of Chile in 2021. It's got 93 points. Mm. I don't know much about the point system, but I think maybe that's something we should investigate learning we should. about. I think, that, I think that's good. Like 91 and above, I think is pretty decent, right? It is. Yeah, it must be good if they're putting it on if the you... bottle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's something to be proud of. <laughs> watch, watch the documentary Psalm. They talk about the point system. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I will definitely do that. Thank we you. We will have rest. to do that. Yeah. Yes. So, so this is called Ravenol Gran Reserva. And there's nothing really special about the bottle other than the points on it. And it's a Cabernet Sauvignon. So uh, I'm looking forward to drinking some of that. <laughs> Yummy. That's awesome. Sounds good. Hey, history lovers, Eliza here. We're interrupting today's happy hour to let you know that Lori and I host another fascinating podcast with our friend, Brenna Ash. Hey there, this is Brenna. Crime Feast is a true crime podcast hosted by three friends who are obsessed with all things crime. Each week, join Brenna, Eliza, and I as we serve up a platter of murders, mayhem, missing persons, tragedies, and more. Feast on notorious tales ripped from today's headlines and resurrected from the past. Until then, stay safe out there. We don't want you on the menu next. Now, back to the show. Cheers! So, on to our questions that we have for you today. For those listeners not familiar with the fall of Imperial Russia in the early 1900s, can you give us a note version on why the family was massacred? Yeah, absolutely. So the last Romanovs were, um, they were kind of a young family. Uh, there was Nicholas and Alexander, the Tsar and Tsarina, and then their children, Olga, Maria, Tatiana, Anastasia, and then the Tsarevich, uh, who was the heir to the throne, Alexei. And in the early 1900s, 
Uh, Russia was in a period, like so many other powers at the time, was in a period of transition. And the Tsarist regime kind of hadn't kept up with that pace of change. Um, Nicholas and Alexandra in particular were very insular monarchs who really viewed, you know, Russia's population as not having kind of moved past the whole surf system. When in reality, Russia had become a, you know, an industrialized nation during the time that they were on the throne and even before. So because of that, Nicholas and Alexandra really weren't, didn't have their fingers on the pulse of their people, which led to a lot of discontent and um, ultimately led to the rise of Bolshevism. On top of that, they, they had a very interesting personal challenge in their family as well uh, with regards to their son, Alexei, who had a condition called hemophilia, which is a rare blood disorder that causes your blood not to clot. And Nicholas and Alexander, unbeknownst to the rest of the world, who knew that Alexei was sickly but didn't really know the specifics of it, they had flown in doctors from all four corners of the earth to come and, and attempt to help their son. And the only person who seemed to have any real effect in helping him was a, uh, a mystic from, uh, from I'm going to butcher the name, but Prokovskoya um, in Russia called Rasputin, Grigory Rasputin. And mm-hmm. Nicholas and Alexandra viewed him as, as the man who could help their son. The rest of Russia and, and the rest of the government saw Rasputin as this very dangerous, uh, lecherous, drunk, horrible individual who was exercising kind of an outsized influence on Nicholas and Alexandra. So those two, um, those two kind of spheres of their life clashed. Uh, they came together in sort of 1916 during the First World War. Everything sort of came to a head and resulted in the overthrow of Nicholas, uh, who abdicated in 19. 19- 17. Wow, that is fascinating. Yeah, it really is. It's, I know it's a, it's a lot. That's sort of the potted, very potted, yeah, potted, potted history of it. But it ended up uh, the family was in captivity. Um, they were under house arrest for about 18 months. It ultimately ended with uh, with them being murdered by uh, by the Bolshevik regime in just a horrible, horrible scene that um, caused the deaths of the whole family. That's really awful. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, it's it's not a happy story. That's for sure. Yeah. Uh, It was recently revealed through some unsealed state letters that the English king, George V, had been asked by his cousin, Tsar Nicholas, for asylum for him and his family. George actually wanted to give it to them, but when he found out what a mess it would make in his own administration and how much his people thought this was a bad idea, he wrote to his administrators and told them to deny his cousin. If he had given them asylum, it would have surely saved their lives. Do you think Nicholas understood his cousin's decision on a political level? Or do you think he felt betrayed? You know, it, it is such a, it's one of those what if kind of crux moments in the historical record, right? What would have happened if Nicholas mm-hmm. had been able to grant uh, to grant asylum to the, to the Romanovs? I think from a political perspective, you know, from a personal perspective, George V's decision was was heartbreaking. But from a political perspective, it was very understandable. Uh, Communism was spreading across Europe at the time. Russia was not the only uh, place in the world where sort of where this idea of thinking was cropping up. Ireland was actually a, um, you know, a place where this idea had caught on, where the idea of socialism, communism had had caught on quite strongly. Hmm. And so, you know, it's not surprising to me that he had to look to his own 
uh, monarchy and his own seat of power before being able to extend uh, asylum. That's not to say that that was an easy decision, and I think Nicholas would have understood it, but George certainly was haunted by that decision um, to the end of his days. He ended up granting asylum to other members of the Romanov family because, of course, after the uh, imperial system fell, it wasn't only the the family themselves who were kind of being hunted down, essentially, by the Bolsheviks. It was the entire kind of upper class of Russia, which ended, you know, there was a, this diaspora of Russian nobles all across Europe. And a lot of them did end up in England, including, um, including Nicholas's sister, Xenia, and uh, for a period of time, I believe his other sister Olga was there before coming to Canada, where she lived out the rest of her days. Wow. When we found out we were going to be chatting with you today, I happened to look them up. And one thing I found so interesting was that George, King George, and Tsar Nicholas literally looked like twins. twins. Like you could interchange twins. them. It's mm. so weird. Because they were just cousins, right? They were just cousins, but they were, they absolutely looked like twins. And actually, there are photos of them in each other's uniforms because they used oh to gosh. switch at family functions because they, they kind of got a kick out of how similar they looked. And Nicholas and, and George certainly viewed each other as closer than cousins. I, I think they really did feel a brotherly bond, which makes it so much more heartbreaking when, yeah. when George had to, you know, had to look at a decision not as a cousin and a brother, but as as a monarch. Yeah, that's tough. That one totally broke me for sure. Do you want to know? Do you want to know one of the big differentiating factors between George and Nicholas, though? Yes. Nicholas had a uh, tattoo on his arm of a dragon. Oh, that's Ooh. interesting. He you don't did. really hear very often of people having tattoos like back, back in, in that day. time it's period. Like, right? Yeah. No, he yeah. got it when he he was on an imperial trip to Japan. And oh, wow. he got, yeah, he got a tattoo of a dragon on his arm. So if anyone saw them in short sleeves, they'd be like, I know you're like, ha <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you tried. <laughs> of all of Tsar Nicholas Romanov's children, I think the most famous is Anastasia um, because of the mystery surrounding whether or not she survived and the Broadway play, which by the way, is fabulous if you haven't seen it. I'm curious what you think about her alleged survival, but first... Can you tell us about her older sister, Olga, who isn't very much like discussed? Like I didn't even realize. I knew there was a lot of children, but I didn't even know her name. Like you really just hear about Anastasia and Alexia, actually. You do. And you know, that that is one of the reasons why I wanted to bring Olga kind of out of the shadow of her, uh, you know, of her sister and of her brother. The the deal with the Romanov family, the, the four daughters were incredibly close. Uh, even in their own time, they referred to themselves as Otma, O-T-M-A, which was an amalgamation of all their first initials. Oh, that's Because funny. they had this closeness. Oh. Yeah, and they dressed the same, you know, they... They really spent all their time together because the um, imperial couple, Nicholas and Alexandra, were so worried about people finding out about Alexei's condition that they really kept the girls sheltered behind these palace walls. So, you know, Olga's life was pretty insular, but that isn't to say that she didn't have fun and she wasn't, you know, she wasn't a, um, you know, a young woman in her 20s because she was. And because of this closeness of the sisters, we view all of the Romanov children as children, and they weren't. Yeah, you know, uh, Tatiana and Olga, the two eldest daughters. Um, Tatiana was, I believe, nineteen, and Olga was, or no, twenty-one and twenty-three when they died. Wow. So they had this 
life. They they had these experiences that their younger siblings did not. Olga was particularly interesting to me because uh, when you read through the sources, I, I was lucky enough to get a hold of her diaries. You know, you really get a sense of the fact that she was she had her pulse on the politics in a way that I don't think her parents did. And she had, you know, she had romances and she nursed soldiers during the First World War. Wow. She took on a lot of her mother's she took on a lot of her mother's responsibility when her mother wasn't feeling well enough to represent Russia as the empress. So she had all of these life experiences that to me were so very interesting. Whereas with, you know, with a character like Anastasia, the story of her pretenders is an interesting one. But it doesn't take into account Anastasia herself, who was this young, vibrant individual. You know, she was a teenager. She was incredibly, she was a prankster. She was constantly Uh playing pranks on her siblings. Uh, You know, she just, she was an absolute little spark plug. We actually have photos of her uh, kneeling on the back of a chair with a brownie camera, facing it into a mirror and taking a selfie. (laughs) Like, yeah. So she was this, isn't that funny? Yeah. 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 So, you know... For all that, though, she was a young girl and her experiences didn't speak to me as much as Olga's did. Being this person who was very much very close to her father, very much in the room when all of these sort of political moments were happening and these seismic changes were happening in Russia. I think Olga could see those much more clearly than than her siblings could. And she did try to kind of shelter her siblings uh, in the end from from the reality of what was happening. Wow. You don't really often hear about them being so old. You know, like you do really think of them as being children. And then to see that two of them were actually like grown women. They were grown women. And, and, you know, in a time when a woman of 21 to 23 was expected to be married and, you know, like, like they were very, they, they were mature in their own way. And we don't really kind of give them that credit. And I think that that, I think that negates a very important aspect of who they were and the lives that they lived. So being able to kind of look at Olga not as a child, but as a young woman was really, really important to me. Yeah, it definitely puts it in perspective because my, my oldest daughter is 22 and she just moved halfway across the country and started a new job. Yeah. So, I mean, they are really independent and you she's know, a make woman. Their own decisions. Yeah, she's a grown yeah. up. It's so wild. She's a grown up. Yeah. So our next question, we may have talked a little bit about, mm-hmm. but what was Olga's relationship like with her parents and her siblings? I mean, Olga was so she was the eldest daughter, and and the book actually opens when she's a little bit younger. Uh, it opens when she's about twelve years old, and her brother is having one of these hemophilic attacks, which was very mm. severe. And she's talking with her grandmother about the fact that she's the eldest daughter. And as the eldest daughter, should she be taking on the role as her father's heir? And in that time period, because of a law passed down actually by Catherine the Great's son who hated her, uh, women were taken out of the line of succession in Russia. So Olga was in this position where she was the eldest daughter. She felt a leadership role. You know, she had this leadership role and she felt this duty and responsibility to her family that she kind of wasn't able to fulfill on a, you know, on a grander scale, on a a political scale. But I think she felt that duty very strongly. Uh, She was incredibly close with her sisters, uh, incredibly devoted to her little brother, Alexei. And, you know, Tatiana, her her closest sister, was was very much her best friend, which I I, I portray their relationship in the book um, as such. With her parents, Olga had a bit more of a challenge. Um, she was very close to her father. She and her father were very similar in, in the way they viewed the world. But her mother 
she found her mother a very trying individual. And Alexandra was a very trying individual. You know, she had one of those personalities that just, she was the chalk to everyone's cheese, if, if you know what I mean. You know, she really <laughs> yeah. didn't get along with people. She didn't really oh, want no. to get along with people. You know, she lived in Russia for years and never really kind of bothered to learn the language because oh, she didn't see the point of making friends, which... You know, when you're the empress, is a, you live there. You live there. You lead the people. Like, maybe you should, you know, go to the parties. And that's actually part of the whole insulating right. herself. Very yeah. much so. Yeah. Very much so. But as a result, Olga was called upon to take on, I mentioned that a little earlier, she was called upon to take on a lot of her mother's duties. Her mother also had these nervous complaints. She constantly had headaches. You know, her health wasn't great. So because of those two things, Olga really kind of took over her mother's role in a lot of ways. And I think she resented her for that. Um, yeah. You know, she talks in her diary and you can almost see her rolling her eyes when she's talking about her mother. And, you know, add on top of that, she's a young woman, you know, in her late teens, early 20s. That's a difficult time to, you yeah. know, that's a difficult time for a mother-daughter relationship to begin with, not without adding on all it of is. these other complications, shall we say. I imagine yeah. that the children obviously spoke Russian, their father spoke Russian. Mm -hmm. And so conversations at the dinner table, I guess they were having to speak in their mother's language, or if they didn't want her to know what they were saying, they were like, well, this is Russia and we speak Russian, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, they, they, were, they were incredibly accomplished kids. I know they spoke English. They spoke English with a Scottish accent because they had a Scottish oh tutor. Gosh. That's hilarious. Uh, yeah. They spoke Russian, obviously. Uh, I think they spoke German as well, because that was their mother's language. So they had all of these, you know, mm -hmm. very, very much polyglots. I wish I could speak more than one language. I, I took French forever. My grandparents lived in France when I was growing up. So I went to France all the time. We had exchange students at our house all the time. I literally took French lessons from like elementary school through college. And I can go there now and like order a coffee. Like it's so bad. <laughs> I just, I, it doesn't I, work for me. It's crazy how you have to use it yeah. or you lose for it. For real. Yeah. yeah you do. I I was the same. You know, French in, in Canada, you, you really do learn French in, in the school system. I did extended French. So half my classes were in French uh, and I didn't exchange to France when I was in high school. So I was pretty good. And then I, I also went to my, did my undergrad in Montreal where French, uh, you know, speak French as well. So I had it and then I lost it for like, yeah. 15 years I didn't use it at all but I was back I was in Paris uh, in September and it kind of came back like not great I was sort of like if I was there for another month mm -hmm. which oh gosh that would have been a shame uh, yeah <laughs> I would have I would have been able to kind of pick it back up it's an excuse to go back like you need to yeah I think I you definitely think need so. to there for a month <laughs> I yeah. think so, for my language abilities yes yes <laughs> when I visited Switzerland a couple of years ago they speak French there as well mm -hmm. um, and German and English and at some of the train stations, like French would be the only thing written. And I was so glad that I could at least like understand which train to get on because if it had only been German, I would have been so lost. <laughs> oh yeah, German is a whole other kettle of fish. <laughs> right? So side notes over like, We'll get back to our questions. <laughs> so the idea of executing an entire royal family seems so archaic. Even with the French Revolution, you wonder why they didn't simply strip them into exile. But it's even more shocking to think that just over 100 years ago, this still felt like the only answer to the Tsar's enemies. Mm -hmm. Why do you think they felt the need to 
kill them all, even the children. Well, you know, a monarchy is an idea. A dynasty is an idea as much as the individual people involved. And so I think for the Bolsheviks, they weren't just trying to get rid of a family. They were trying to get rid of an idea and a philosophy of governance. Mm. So, you know, if you keep the bloodline alive, there's a chance it can come back. So for them, they weren't looking yeah. at they weren't looking at Nicholas's children as children. They were looking at them as possible figureheads around which monarchists could later rally. There was a war in mm-hmm. Russia um, after the Bolsheviks took over. Between It was a civil war between the whites and the reds, as they're called. One of the big challenging points for the white army, which were the, the monarchists, was they didn't have that figurehead to rally around mm. because Nicholas and his whole family had been killed. You know, if Alexei had survived, if one of the daughters had survived, there was always a chance that in 20 years' time, that person could have come back and taken over. There is actually a really interesting sort of side note, footnote in history. Maria, the third daughter, um, had been proposed to by Prince Carol of Romania before the abdication, and Nicholas turned him down on her behalf because basically he said, she's too young, she's got two older sisters, we have to marry them off first. And... Mm -hmm. It is kind of one of those what if moments, because if she had married into the Romanian royal family, the Romanians would have really had to have intervened in the fate of the family in a way that they had. So that's crazy. I have the chills. Yeah, I I I had no idea. Yeah. 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 So So that could have turned out very differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also wonder if that that led to, you know, some of the rumors of Anastasia, you know, and very much people so. wanting that figurehead. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, and one of the reasons that people chose Anastasia as the subject for all of these pretender rumors was because she was the youngest. And as a result, her features hadn't fully formed. Uh, she hadn't matured yeah. into her, you know, into her looks in the way that the other daughters had. So people could come up, come forward and say 20 years later, oh, yes, I'm Anastasia. Can't you tell? My cheekbones just look a little different, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 So I've basically, you know, I've heard about Rasputin. I think a lot of people have in relation to the mm-hmm. Romanov family, mostly just that he was like a creepy bad guy. But can you tell us about his relationship with the family and with Olga? Yeah. Um, you know, Rasputin, he's he's one of these like archetypal villains of history, right? We see him and, and you know, you look at pictures of him. He was a creepy looking guy, right? Like yeah. he had this wild yeah. beard and these crazy glittering green eyes. And he had this intensity about him, which people either loved or hated. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, for the imperial family, they very much loved him because he seemed to have this ability to, to stop Alexei from bleeding, you know, when every doctor in the world couldn't. And, and to them, they were very religious and they saw Rasputin as sent by God. They saw him as a holy mm-hmm. man who had a direct line to God and that was how he was stopping the bleeding. Mm-hmm. In reality, you know, who knows really what actually happened? There are a whole bunch of different theories, one of which is that, you know, he was something of a horse whisperer. And so he talked to Alexei and bring down his blood pressure as a result, which would allow, you know, which would allow the blood to clot. One of the others mm-hmm. is that all the doctors at the time, aspirin was a miracle drug. And so they would prescribe aspirin for everything. Aspirin is a blood thinner. Oh, yeah. So Rasputin would come in and say, don't give him anything. Leave him alone. And because he wasn't being given aspirin, his blood would clot. 
The third theory is that he mm-hmm. just had really good timing and he would show up at the end of a crisis when Alexei was already kind of through it and he'd say oh. a few words and to the family it would look like he had, you know, he had been the result. You know, he, he was the one who, did, who was able to do that. So they saw him very differently from how the rest of the world saw him. The rest of the world saw this scary looking, wild, muttering man slink into the palace for reasons unknown and then slink back out. Rumors started to crop up as a result of that Uh, and then during the First World War, when Nicholas went off to command the Russian army personally, he left Alexander in charge. And Alexander, because she trusted Rasputin, brought Rasputin into decisions um, of governance where he really didn't have a right to be or any expertise being there. So it all kind of coalesced. Yeah. But, you know, to yeah. everybody else, he would leave the palace and he'd be a completely different person. He would... You know, he'd get drunk, he'd take advantage of women, he, you know, he was not a good guy. Right. But he was able to turn on the charm for the people who kind of mattered most, if you can say that. Yeah, that's wild. And th- those are the people who, you know, they were looking at him as concerned parents. Right. Instead of as the monarchy, you know, they yeah. they were worried about their child. Well, exactly. Which, you know, if, if, if you've got a child you're worried about, then anybody that can help them. You'll do anything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And even right off bad behavior. Yeah. And it wasn't only them looking at it as parents. Obviously, that was like concern number one. But concern number two is without Alexei, there was no heir to the Russian throne. So there oh, was yeah, kind of right. a twofold. There was yeah. twofold concern that they had. And that really did eclipse every other objection that people would bring up about Rasputin because he was not only saving their child. He was also saving the dynasty. Mm-hmm. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Following that fun bit of information, can you give us three fun facts that you discovered during your research? Uh, yes. My first and my absolute favorite fun fact is actually about Anastasia. Um, you know, I told you that she was something of a selfie queen and yeah. she was she was a prankster. But the other thing which I had to write into the book was that she had this idea in her head that she could breed a race of ultra smart worms if she just could like... <laughs> take the worms and do it properly <laughs> so she had like this terrarium filled with worms and she was convinced oh that she gosh. was going to create like super worms and I, <laughs> she was a little scientist, she was a scientist. <laughs> yeah who knows I know. what she would have been able to do later on in life we might have had super worms yeah we might have had super worms <laughs> if elect if uh if anastasia had survived but i know so i had to put that in because i was just like that is that is hilarious yeah <laughs> That's amazing. I'm glad you added that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then and then my other two kind of have to deal with the, like one of the themes that I had running through the book was the idea of like myth and prophecy and all this stuff. So there were two prophecies that sent chills down my spine when I read them in the, you know, in the historical record. The first was that it like af- during the war, so very close to the end of Nicholas's rule, Olga and her siblings and her mother went to visit a seer and she was she was locked up in this nunnery, literally had chains around her. Oh my gosh. Olga talks about going in and being absolutely creeped out by her and like her papery yeah. skin and yeah. this woman who's had these rattling chains on her and it was all kind of of her own accord, but uh, it's quite creepy. And it's creepy. In multiple sources, not uh, Olga doesn't say it, but two of the retainers separately from each other mentioned the fact that when Alexandra, the empress, spoke to the seer, the seer said when she turned away, uh, behold the martyred empress. So that's certainly quite creepy. Creepy. That's certainly intriguing. Mm-hmm. Um, it is. 
So that was one that I had to put in was this this visit to the seer where a seer is yeah. prophesying the end of the Romanov rule. Rasputin, as a side note, Rasputin also had a prophecy about if you're murdered by peasants, the monarchy would survive. But if he was murdered by noblemen and, and relatives of the Romanovs, then the entire line would be wiped out. Yeah. But then the other one, so that, that wasn't actually the other prophecy that I wanted to talk about. The other prophecy is actually the preface mm-hmm. of the book. It happened when Olga was born. Prince, I think it was Prince Charles of Denmark, who was an amateur astrologer, decided yeah. to decided to pull together Olga's horoscope on the day that she was born. And he says in it that it is certain she will not live past um, past the age of 25. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. Yeah. I yeah. got more chills. <laughs> I know. That's so creepy. I know. I keep I know. It's, it's wild. And I saw I saw it like you can find the newspaper articles on the day of her birth where this prophecy is. That's wild. Know, where it's mm. where it's recorded. So yikes. Yeah. It's a my goodness. It's an interesting time period. It's an interesting world. It's very much I went into it thinking, oh it's it's gonna be European and Russia is very different from from the rest of Europe and Yeah. I really, I really enjoyed learning about Russian culture and Russian history in, in this book. We've been enjoying you sharing it with us. So we've been talking <laughs> all about the history and the research behind your book. But can you give us a little blurb about your book, The Last Grand Duchess? Yes. So The Last Grand Duchess tells the story of the final days of the Romanov dynasty, as told through the eyes of uh, Nicholas and Alexander's eldest daughter, Olga. So it starts on the night of her father's abdication and uh, the night when the family is put under house arrest and looks forward or backward in time from there, chronicling the rise of Lenin and the Bolsheviks, but also looking at all of the circumstances which led to her father's abdication. We look at Olga as a young woman, as a grand duchess, of course, but as a young woman with all the hopes and dreams that a young woman has, um, you know, we see her fall in love. We see yeah. her grapple with duty and loyalty to family versus sort of her own notions of self-actualization. And uh, ultimately, we look at uh, the choices she makes that uh, that lead to where she ends up. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it's all fascinating. And we can tell you've yeah. really researched it. Um, it, was, it was a privilege being able to research it. I, I loved the whole process. We are all writers, but we're also readers. What are you currently reading? I'm currently reading a book called Big Friendship. Ooh. Big Friendship, How We Keep Each Other Close. I like that. By Amina Tao Sao and Anne Friedman. It's about female friendship and... That's awesome. The importance of, you know, platonic friendships and, and how to, that. you know, how to keep them close and how to how to value them in your life. They're so important. Yeah. We might yeah, all need I to read, read that, that book. It's excellent. I definitely yeah. Book. Excellent. Yes. Really wonderful and readable and just lovely. So where can our readers find you? Uh, you can find me um, in your local bookstore, but uh, <laughs> online at uh, BrynTurnbull.com. Um, that's my, that's my big web presence. And then on Instagram, uh, that's where I'm most active on social media. It's Bryn Turnbull writes. And then also on Facebook and Twitter as uh, Bryn Turnbull. I mean, I'm in all the places, but Instagram is the one where I like to hang out the most. That's where you see pictures of my dog. <laughs> uh, I love Instagram and your dog. I love so dog cute. pictures. <laughs> She's been very Her good and quiet so throughout this whole she thing. Has. I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed yeah. with her. <laughs> she deserves a treat yeah, after this. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not going to say that out loud because then she'll hear it and start yeah. talking. But... Yeah. Don't say that word. <laughs> but she's getting one. Sorry. She'll get one. 
Oh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And we had a lot of fun chatting with you. This has been great. Oh, yeah, thank well, you. Thank you so much for inviting me. This has been such a pleasure. Uh, I always I always love catching up with other writers. And uh, I'm so excited so about both of, your, both of your upcoming works. And Thank you. You too. (laughs) Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with guest author Bryn Turnbull. Next week, tune in to hear about the violins of hope for the Holocaust remembrance. Coming up, we have guest author Cecilia Mecca joining us. Then we'll be back to talk about the women rebels of the Jacobite rebellion in Scotland. Bye. For more information about today's episode, click on the show notes. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at HistoryBKSWine for additional historical tidbits and updates. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a review. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you download your podcast. That way you're notified every time a new episode is live. Subscribes and reviews help us get noticed. Thank you for tuning in. Be sure to check out our episodes published weekly on Tuesdays. Until next time. Cheers. And happy reading. The first time I used Instacart was with my sister. We were baking cookies and I'd forgotten the butter. Instacart to the rescue. Now I even use it when we're on vacation so our staples are delivered right to our door. Save yourself that trip to the market. Instacart delivers groceries in as fast as one hour. They connect you with personal shoppers in your area to shop and deliver groceries from your favorite stores. Follow the link in our show notes and that lets Instacart know we sent you and help support our show. Plus, you'll get free delivery on your first order over $35. There's multiple stores available in most areas. Shop all your favorites on a single order. The products you love from local stores. Hand selected by shoppers based on your preferences. Delivery to your door in as fast as one hour. Instacart highlights deals to help you save money. Find everything you usually buy and get smart suggestions for new items. They pick the freshest produce and keep your eggs safe too. Let Instacart shop for you. Hello, listeners. This is Lori, and I'm here to tell you that podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners. We use Buzzsprout, and it's hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories within minutes of finishing your recording. You'll get a great looking podcast website, detailed analytics, and more. Following the link in our show notes, let's Buzzsprout know that we sent you. Get you a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up for a paid plan and help support our show. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed.